Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So we're in this series on the end of Hebrews, and what we have sort of uh, mined, if you will, is a really key element to the entire message of the book, which is the relationship between faith and community, how they sort of merge together to the degree that we've actually said, and I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate, that uh, you treat community like you treat your faith. You hold on to it with everything you have. Uh, We're on this sort of spiritual journey and our faith has to last, but we need each other for it to last. And so we see the relationship between those two. And some questions have sort of surfaced as we've recapped getting back into Hebrew since uh, last semester about faith and the idea of eternal security, you know, you know, once saved, always saved, do you you make it to the end of what faith is like? Um, And so we addressed that question pretty, pretty heavily last week. And let me just give you a very quick review. We're on our way to this city, which is a great visual, kind of looks like this. Um, you have a beginning of your faith, you have a middle of your faith, and then you have an end when we arrive at the big city that is the lasting city that Hebrews has told us about. And so our faith has, has got to last all the way to the end. And um, we said that somehow it's easy to think about the beginning of our faith and it's easy to think about what's gonna happen later, but the middle gets really muddy. Not really sure what to do with the middle. It gets difficult. And so uh, he says, he uses a word in Hebrews to sort of help us think about our faith as a whole because our faith is supposed to be seen as one big continuum. It doesn't just have a beginning and an end. It's the whole thing. And so the way you assess your faith is what it's like and looks like today. That's the most important assessment of your spiritual life. Where are you today in relation to your faith and on this journey? Uh, So remember what he says in Hebrews uh, right at the beginning. This is how he begins the book. Oh, that today you would listen as he speaks and do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. And then verse 13 which I failed to put up here. He says, exhort one another daily. Uh, Exhort one another as long as it's today. Because you'll never make it to the end. Today is the key. And the only way you're gonna get all the way without your heart hardening is you're gonna need each other. But your faith has to go all the way. So, The question becomes, what did you do with your faith today? Not yesterday. And so we've actually looked in chapter 13, verse 8, where he's sort of summing everything up. And he says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's that same continuum. Jesus was enough for the beginning. He's enough for the present. And he's enough for the future. 
It's this middle piece. How do you know your faith was real back here? You assess it by today. Where's your faith today? It was real if it lasts. That's what real faith does. It endures. It has some bumps in the road, but it endures. Um, A.W. Tozer, in his book, uh, God's Pursuit of Man, has a chapter titled, the first chapter is called The Eternal Continuum, which is a great picture for faith because this is sort of an eternal continuum. And in it, I want to give you this picture because he says, a robust faith requires that we grasp a truth firmly that seldom enters our minds. We habitually stand in our now and we look back at yesterday, he says, we look back at faith to see the past filled with God and we are tempted to look forward to what God has for us in the future. What we're not incredibly good at, he says, is figuring out how to inhabit God in the middle. This is, a, this is the point of Hebrews. And so he sort of describes that we, we have this sort of strange faith about the beginning and a strange faith about, and we sort of can live as practical atheists in the middle. And the middle's difficult. It's the wilderness. And so he gives this picture. He says, here's how we could correct that error. If we imagine ourselves, here's the visual, uh, standing by a bank, a river bank, with a full flowing river, uh, let us imagine that the river is God himself. So you can, make, you can picture that. We glance to our left, and we see the river coming full out of our past. We look to the right, we see the river flowing into our future. But we see also that it is flowing through our present and in our today, and in our today, it is the same as it was in our yesterday, not less than, nor different from, but the very same river, one unbroken continuum, undiminished, active, strong, as it moves sovereignly to tomorrow. That's your faith. So he says, wherever faith has been original, if you want to know where faith really started and how it started and whether or not he says, this is what he says, wherever faith has been original, wherever it has proved itself to be real, it has invariably had upon it a sense of the present. So we said, You don't assess your spirituality, your relationship with God, your eternal future based on something that just happened in the past. You assess it by the question, what do I believe today? Am I obeying today? Am I doing what God wants me to do today? What gives the past its power is that it's connected to a today and on a continuum. Um, I know that we sort of made that really clear. Today matters. So that's our faith on the continuum, if we're looking at this. That's our faith on the continuum. But there's something else that runs alongside that, parallel to it, that the book of Hebrews has been telling us. And it has to do with community. Because here's what he has said throughout the book. Here's what he has said. See to it, brothers and sisters, 
there's our community, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart. How are you going to make it all the way to the end? Well, you need brothers and sisters to do that. So later in the book, he'll say, let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. That's the top part. That's the faith. For the one who made the promise is trustworthy. So we don't want to let go of the faith. And then he says this. And figure out how to spur one another to love and good deeds. So he'll tell you, hold on to your faith. And then he'll say, help other people with their faith. Your faith is never individual. It's never alone. So how do you do that? By not abandoning the meetings. You got to get together. You got to be in community. Faith is not, as we'll see, a journey you make alone. Some of you are in the habit of doing just that. I need you to encourage each other, especially as you see the judgment day approaching. So you can see there's a community element that goes with this. And then when you get to chapter 13, he brings that in again. Brotherly love must continue. Well, that's what he's been saying about our faith, that it must continue all the way to the end. Now he's saying brotherly love must continue all the way to the end. They run parallel to one another. Kind of looks like this. This is maybe the best. They run hand in hand. If my faith weakens, my community weakens. If my community weakens, my faith weakens. They're so tied together but you can't always uh, distinguish them. So you've, had, you've got what he says in chapter 13 here uh, about this brotherly love and this chapter 13 verse one sort of as a canopy over the whole chapter so that you can't obey chapter 13 unless you're in some thick sort of robust community connected to other people. So he's put them together. And then as we get into chapter 13 now, we come to this section here and it kind of looks like this. I set it off so that you can see that there's a beginning and an end to this, the, the main heart of chapter 13, which we're entering now. And you can see it says, remember your leaders. In other words, at the beginning and the end of this thing, he's going to bring up community. Whatever faith is in the middle, in the life that you're supposed to be living, you've got to do it within the structure of the community and the leadership. You're not just alone. This is really important. Let me tell you why this is so powerful. And when he's talking about the leaders on both ends here, he's talking about the church. It can't be anything else. Um, so that you got to be entrenched in that. It's almost even literarily, he's forcing you into this box here, this community box. You got to do it within there um, in order to make it to the end. And, and it's interesting. This is remember your leaders. This is your past leaders. This is your present leaders. Now get what he's done with this continuum, the one we just showed you. Let's see. He's basically said, you had past leaders who helped you with your faith. And now you have present leaders. You have leaders today who are helping you. In other words, he's essentially saying, your faith is tied to the people that are helping you through it. 
So he sets up the same continuum. Your faith has to go and the leaders have to go. Your past ones, the past leaders in your life that were there, that helped you, that guided you, that got you on track, that introduced you. And now you, have, you should have leaders in your life too that are helping you. How do I know my faith was real back here? Well, I had a community of people helping me. And now I can just see the same thing. I still have faith and I still have the community helping me. You see how they go side by side? They just go together. So you have past leaders and you have present leaders that are operating in your life. Um, in Augustine's the city of God, uh, he uses this imagery to describe that we're sort of migrants on our way to this big city in the sky, the city that God has, that we've talked about. Uh, And here's, I told you I was reading a book that's helping us understand Augustine, and here's what he writes. We're not just pilgrims on a sacred march to a religious site. Don't turn your faith into something sort of, I don't know, weird like that. Well, you just got a backpack on and you're just trying to visit some cool site that's a part of your religious history. No, 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 no. You're a migrant. You're a refugee. You're on your way home. You have something calling you to something beyond this world. You're not just a pilgrim on a journey. He says, you're migrants, you're strangers here, resident aliens in or out to a homeland you've never seen before. You didn't leave a home and hope to get back to it. You've never been here. So according to chapter 11, and he says it here, God is the country we're looking for. That's God. That place where true consolation of our migration is found. It's the only thing that will ultimately fulfill us. In fact, he says... It's important that we are we and not just me. Solo migrants. We're not solo migrants on the journey. Migration is a social event, he says. And then he writes this. The essential characteristic of the true Christian lies in his status as a migrant as belonging to a society of migrants. Like Israel. Like migrants everywhere, we could never brave this treacherous road alone. Then this is a great line. Conversion is joining this caravan. Not setting out alone. And one scholar he quotes calls it, it's as if we are living at intense city. I don't know. Uh, this is such a powerful image. Uh, a tent city. Life is tenuous and tense. It's very dependent. You live differently. Uh, you're never at home here. You're always trying to get somewhere else. I, I, I had the privilege a few years back of going to northern Iraq. And um, it was my first exposure to a tent city. Um, people fleeing from Syria, people now, there's more refugees coming in from Syria because of what Turkey's doing, 20,000 more. So uh, I talked to this week, Matt Nowry. This is Kirk's son. He's our, uh, the one we help in India. This is his son. 
He is the director in northern Iraq for Samaritan's Purse. He feeds, loves on, uh, ministers to the children, and uh, tries to help these people deal with the fact that they're not home and may never go home. That's his job. He's a phenomenal guy. I talked to him this week about this. There's 90,000 people in six different camps. They've been in them, uh, like this camp right here that I was in, 10 years. If you, give birth, if you had a one-year-old, he's 11 now in here. Uh, it's incredibly difficult living. It's just incredible. You've lost everything. It didn't matter what you had. And um, I was talking to him about it. And he said, there's two things about sort of this, these refugee camps, these tent cities. Uh, the first one is everyone in there is vulnerable and at risk. And they all know it. And they live with that on their sleeve. You know, we bring them food, counseling. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to be where these people are. The suicide rate is incredibly high. And um, we do our best to serve and love these people. And he told me that God's doing incredible things, bringing uh, Christ to them. That's what his job is. And um, the first thing he said about him is vulnerable and, and at risk. So if we're talking about a, what we're talking about is a refugee spirituality. How do we live in the middle like refugees who are not home yet? Well, the first thing is, is you realize you're at vulnerable and at risk. And you know you're not at home. You know this is an ultimate. But there's another thing uh, that he said that they feel. One of them is, uh, it doesn't matter who the people are. You got the Yazidis and you've got Muslim coming together. They got different religions, different faiths. They all come together. You got enemies living in these tents together. And he said, what happens is, is they all become friends because their present plight is deeper than their animosity toward one another. And they've got to figure out how to live together. And they need each other. That's what it means to have a refugee spirituality. Um, a refugee spirituality, the first thing about it that would describe us is there's this deep longing for home. Um, when you come to Christ, when you come to know God, uh, and you're on this journey, you immediately start to feel out of place. It's one of the first things that happens. You're never fully comfortable here. You have the very assured sense, this is not home. That I was made for another world. That nothing ultimately here will satisfy me. The only thing scarier to me, when I think about the sort of the rock and the hard place that we live in as people of faith, the only thing scarier to me than the journey of faith and, and getting to the end because it's a hard journey, is that I might stop and camp out and make one of these tents something that it, that it can't be, something ultimate, and it'll never be. It doesn't matter what it is. If, if you don't have this journey to be on, this, that means this is all you have, and it is not enough. 
And the only thing scarier to me than making it to the end and, and keeping my faith through the difficulties is the idea that I'd stop and make the tent that I'm living in everything. And that's never going to work. So, I mean, it's a difficult place. So there's this deep longing for home that I just, yeah, that I feel. You should feel it. And then the second thing is this deep need for community along the way. There should be this instinctive attraction to other people who are trying to do what I'm trying to do. And there's no way I imagine that I could get there by myself. There's this sense that I'm incapable of doing that. Those are the two things that, that sort of make up what it means to have a refugee spirituality. You got to have both. And if one weakens, the other weakens. You've experienced it in your life. I've seen it a million times. If your faith grows, your community is growing. If your community shrinks, your faith shrinks. It just happens. It works that way. So I was trying to reflect on that because community is such a, I don't know. There's a part of me that hates the word because we've heard it so many times. We're not really sure what in the world to do with it, what, what it means. Um, uh, but these, these two things overlap. I'm, gonna, I'm teasing them out over the next few weeks. But anyway, these two mingle in such a de- to a degree that you can't always distinguish them apart. If you've lived in community for any length of time, you start to not be able to distinguish your faith from the people you experience it with. I've been in community for over three decades. Uh, 25 of those years here. I, I don't even know what my faith looks like without you in it. I don't even know what my faith would mean if I didn't have the people in it. And I don't know what my community would look like if, if I didn't have faith. They, would, they just go together. All I know, all I can tell you is it's so difficult to describe what's happened over there. All I can tell you is that I'd never make it this far without the community. Without people in my world. And that leads me to the second question that was sort of asked when we recapped Hebrews. Not just about faith lasting, but talk to me about community. And some of you have said, it's really hard to get into community. I want to say something to you about this whole dynamic. It's really important. And I think it's at the center of this. Um, when it comes to community, looking around you, we spend a lot of time at Hillside, all, all the churches around here do, doing everything they can to come up with ways to get you in community. It's, it's, it's the, one of the number one tasks we have around here. And all the churches do it. And we got people that come here all the time looking for community, wanting community, whatever the case. And you got, and I just want to say something to you. I know that community is difficult. And some of the people that have come up to me, they've said, well, you know, um, I've had some bad experiences community and I've had uh, uh, or I'm in a really funky stage of life I don't think I'm going to find it here or um, you know uh, this is my circumstance and you go so I don't know and so what we do what we mostly do and I'll bet there's a handful of people in here doing it maybe more 
You just sort of look out at the church and you go, man, I think it's just too hard to connect with those people. Or, you know, uh, I don't know if they're really that friendly. I don't know. They've been together and I'm never going to get in here. I'm new here and, geez, it just looks daunting and over. And I will tell you, on the one hand, I totally get those impressions. But the reason you're not in community is absolutely something internal with you. It's not because the church can't take you in. We can and all the churches around here can. And there's phenomenal people in every church around you. You want into that community, you can get in it. You gotta fight for it a little bit because relationships are relationships. But the reason you don't go in there and you don't blame the church, they don't have a good enough structure, there's too many people there, I tried it and got my feelings hurt. Hey, welcome to the club. I had a guy come up to me after the service, I was so thrilled. Uh, he comes up to me and he goes, you know, I've only been here two weeks and I got to tell you, uh, you said something today that I didn't even realize was happening to me. I had a bad experience in community years ago. He told me that he was on a trip with the church and got lost and no one was looking for him. And when he got done with this trip, I don't know all the details of it. All I know is he said, I never wanted to be in community anymore after that. And you're sitting up here telling me today, the problem is me. It isn't everybody else. Don't blame everybody else because you can't get into community. Communities, it's, you got to get, you got to fight. You got to fight for it. But you can't be viewing people as uh, sort of robbers. You can't be viewing people as, uh, you know, uh, threats to you. Well, you know, you get in a community and then you got to, you got to eat their food. And you got you know, you to do their study. And you got uh, to like them. And, you know, th- of course, that's what happens in community. It's the whole dynamic of that happening that shapes your faith, and you get to shape other people's faith. And if you don't have it, I mean, I, I said this in the first service. <laughs> You're going to get hurt. But that's true anywhere you go. been hurt a million times by this place I love. I guarantee you have to. God gives us a way to deal with hurt. He doesn't give us a way to deal with our faith without community. You know what 1 Corinthians 13 is for? Have you ever read that chapter and not at a dang wedding? You know, you read it at a wedding and it's just all about love and there's two people going to have sex for the first time tonight. Maybe. Maybe not the first time. I don't know when they're going <laughs> to. And so we read this beautiful passage of scripture like uh, somehow it's just going to be an awesome night for you guys. You guys are dressed for it. You're dressed for it. <laughs> first Corinthians 13 is about what to do when you get hurt. Read every single characteristic of love. Somebody had to hurt you for you to respond the way First Corinthians 13 tells you to do it. God gives you a way to deal with hurt. He does not give you a way to deal with your faith without community. Do you understand that? It's very important. Because there are many times I've wanted to just see. He gives you away. So hopefully that helps answer that question. You want to come to a place in your life where, as the, the writer of this book I'm reading says, you don't view community as walls hemming you in, you know, keeping you back from being yourself, but rather scaffolding holding you together. That's what community is. And if you've been in it long enough, 
If you've been in community long enough, yes, you've dealt with hurts, but you don't see it as walls hemming you in. You see it as scaffolding holding you up. Now, just to sort of make this picture here come alive a little bit, where you got, you know, leaders here and leaders here, and somehow we got to live the faith inside some some authority structure. Because I'm looking at words like obey and submit. What, what, what do they mean? And uh, remember your past leaders. Imitate their faith. What's going on in the structure? Somehow, adequate to the redeemed community, the church, who are trying to live out in this life in a tent city, as people who are not home yet, God has provided a structure adequate to the redemption he's provided us the salvation he's given us, to make it together in some kind of healthy structure or we'll never get there by ourselves. Now, <laughs> uh, at the end of this, you want to get a, a, a little picture. Hopefully I can give you this picture. So you got your past leaders, present leaders, and in between, Christ teaches us how to live this life. But we need each other. So there's a box each other in to hold us, contain us in this process because it's not easy living in the middle. But at the end of it, I want you to see what verse 20, I want you to see how this, look, think about how the, the, the book closes, the imagery that it closes with. Now may the God of peace who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus. So he is our great shepherd He's the great leader. So when you look at these sort of images, you see that you have leaders in here, but we're all under the great shepherd. So there is a dynamic where the great shepherd, who's done what he's done for us, moves us into community in order for us to make it. That's the last sort of closing image. So think about this for a second, because the way this book ends is viewing us as sheep. Now, I know you probably have some basic knowledge of sheep. You may not have ever raised them, I've never raised them, but I could probably say the things, and you're going to know, yeah, I've heard that before about sheep. Here's two things, because I did some reading. Uh, Number one, They're lost without leadership. Lost without leadership. Completely vulnerable. They're not very bright animals. So they're lost without leadership. The second thing is, is they have an instinct. In fact, they're bred with it. They they pass it to each other. Instinctively, we must stay together or we will not survive. It's instinctive in them. Instinctively, they know to follow a leader, and instinctively, they know to be together. That's the two dominant features. They're vulnerable and at risk, unless they're in groups. You see them in a group, it's harder to get one of them than if they're alone. And so they have what these writers I'm reading called uh, a flocking instinct. They know they got to be in groups. And so, um, I don't know if you know this, I I read it this week, that in 2006, in eastern Turkey, the sheep 
400 sheep plunged to their death death after one of the sheep tried to cross a 15-meter deep ravine and the rest of the flock just followed. I read that and you're probably thinking the same thing. Not one of those 399 sheep thought to themselves, that's a bad idea. (laughs) Not one of them. Not a one of them. Because they're instinctive, they'll follow a leader. And so uh, what you have when you're thinking about this imagery at the end that describes us, that tells us all why we need help on the journey, why we need two things instinctively as as sheep. We've got to have a leader to follow. We've got a main leader, and then God's given us other leaders in our lives to help us. But there's also a mutuality. There's an authority structure that we've got to come to grips with. But there's also a mutuality where we're together, serving, exhorting, and helping each other. Um, So, uh, I got to... uh, this point in my talk. I was about halfway through my talk when I got to this point in the first service and realized I wasn't going to be able to tease this out for you. So we have to tease this out. We have to tease out the authority structure and we have to tease out the mutuality structure. And uh, I, I do not have time to do it today. I'm going to have to get back to it. So with that said, let me just bring your hearts and minds around, sort of get you ready for that piece uh, and, and take you back to the theme, which is a refugee spirituality, and tease that out for you. Uh, so in the refugee spirituality, two things. Number one, you have a longing for home. When Christ comes into your life, you get this longing for home. You, you are never at home here. And there's a million different ways that life brings that reality on you. But if you have God in your life and he's, he's revealed something better, then your, your heart is constantly drawn for it. And you'll be tempted. You'll have plenty of times in the middle of your faith where you'll be tempted to make something here matter the most that can't sustain it. It's not capable of it. And in a sense, you'll let it save you instead of God. Okay, it could, be, it could be money, it could be, a, a, it could be accomplishments, it can be another person that you think will save you. If you just had different circumstances, a better house, uh, maybe more money, you're tempted all the time to latch on to one of those things and make it more than it is. And uh, it hit me in the first service, I wasn't planning to say this, but... I've been sort of mourning uh, the death of Kobe Bryant and the, and the people that were on that helicopter. And, uh, you know, my son is on the radio, so I listen to, you know, 105.3 The Fan a lot because he's on it. And everyone's fighting to try to find the words to adequately express their grief and, and honor a guy like him. 
And it's just, it's, it's just devastating for everyone. And um, a few people have sort of stumbled onto the reality. That, and I've heard a couple of them try to figure out, yeah, what do you do if somebody like that can die early? It always happens when a surprising death of a celebrity happens. Because you're like, that guy has some of the things I'm living for. Flies around in a helicopter, got a really nice house, got a great family, probably, I mean, had a sweet wife, he had beautiful kids, he had a, a lustrous career, he had gifts, he had impact, good looking. I mean, which one of those do you think is going to save you? And the truth of the matter is, nothing he had could save him. Nothing can. I bring uh, our kids over to the house, Gail and I, about twice a month to watch an old movie we know they've never seen. And because of it, they can't mature. You know what I'm saying? They just never really be adults until they see some of the great movies of the 80s and 90s that we saw. And so... uh, Gail and I just sort of comb through them all, try to find the ones that we want them to see. And it's, all, it's been phenomenal. Every time we've done it, it's, they've loved everyone we've shown them so far. And the last one we did was Sabrina with Harrison Ford. You got to see that movie, he'll say. It's great. Harrison Ford is this, uh, he and his brother sort of inherited the business of his mom and dad, dad especially. And Harrison, you know, Greg Kinnear plays the, the younger brother who's a, just a player. He's got money and he doesn't care about the business. Harrison Ford, I mean, that's all he cares about is the business. His whole life, that's all he's cared about. On the property where they live is a chauffeur, and the chauffeur has a daughter, a little, little girl that they interacted with a little bit as part of the family, but never paid too much attention to but she gets into her college years and she goes off to Paris. And when she comes back, she's this incredible, like, they can't take their eyes off her when she comes back. All of a sudden, they want to get to know her. So who are you again? And Greg Kinnear falls for her. And then you see this sort of uh, um, strange things start to happen to Harrison Ford in the role that he plays. Because he starts to realize he's wasted a lot of his life. Not on relationships, not, not on the things that matter the most but on money and other stuff. And you get a guy like that and he doesn't, he's not sure what it's gonna be that's really gonna make his life tick because he realizes it's not business and money. He's got plenty of both. And so what happens is he starts to fall for this girl in a way he didn't expect would happen. And somewhere in the middle of the movie when they're interacting, she tells him the story of, it's a sort of a parable for the, for the movie of somebody who gets rescued by somebody else. And that's sort of hanging in the background until the very end of the movie when you don't know what's going to happen. He thinks he's lost her, and at the end, he meets her and tells her, I've lived my life without you for two, I'm nothing without you, blah, blah, blah. And then the last line of the movie, he says, save me, Sabrina Fair. That's her name. Save me. And, it, and it's so romantic. Isn't that romantic? I mean, it's so romantic that you're just like, yes, save that. 
amazing. Uh, and you're like, oh, they're going to be together and they're going to save each other. And here's the thing. And she just darts in his arms like she's capable of saving him. He thinks she's going to save him. But she can't save him. She thinks she's going to do it and she can't do it. These are going to be the most disappointed people ever. But in the moment, it sounds so great. And that's how we do in life. We'll say to something, save me. No, no one else can save you except for the great shepherd whose blood was sacrificed for you and who brought you and, and was brought back from the dead. He died, on your, he died for your sins when you were the, and then made it possible for there to be something beyond this life. That's what the resurrection is for. There's no one else who could do that. That's why he's called great. No one else can lead you there. No one else can save you there. No one else can forgive your sins and open up a reality to you that this world can never meet. Nobody can do that but him. And so you follow. Have you heard of uh, the bummer sheep? I read this this, this week. I, I, it came across my desk. I wasn't even searching for it. That happens a lot sometimes. Uh, uh, it's called bummer lambs. Have you ever heard of bummer lambs? Maybe if you've been in this world a little bit. Uh, sometimes an ooh will reject one of its lambs. And there's multiple reasons why that can happen. But when it does, it's basically a death sentence for that sheep. Um, and her rejection is not only a death penalty, but you can see it on her. In fact, um, people who deal with sheep will say they hang their uh, heads so low when they're rejected by their mother that it looks like they've broken their neck. And they have a couple pictures of it. It's unbelievably sad. And no matter what you do, the mother will never change its mind, ever. So the only hope that this sort of alienated, destined to die lamb has is if the shepherd grabs a hold of it, loves on it, takes it, takes it into its home, keeps it warm, feeds it, loves on it, until it's old enough to be put back into the into the flock, really, at, you know, on its own. And I'm thinking about this story, and it's just incredible what he says, because um, uh, it's just like us. You know, rejected by God, sin alienates us from God, and then sometimes in this world we feel alone no matter what we have, and then, or who we have, and... Um, we're never truly home. No matter what we have here, there's, there, you just wake up and sometimes we just feel like we're not in the right place. And, um, and then Christ comes into our life. It's the same kind of thing. And see, what makes him the great shepherd, what makes him a great shepherd is that he was willing to become like the sheep. John 10 says, I'm the good shepherd. Good shepherds give their life for their sheep. That's what makes him worthy of being followed. 
That's what makes him worthy of fighting for community and keeping your faith going, is that we have a leader, we have a shepherd who's become like one of us. That's what gives him. That's why we love him. That's why we're not at home here. Because of what he's done. That's the only thing that's going to keep you on the path. It's the only thing that's going to keep you moving into community when you've been hurt. It's what he's done. You know what they say about the bummer lambs that when the sheep, when that sheep finally gets into the flock and is going, whenever that shepherd will call those sheep, he's the, the bummer lamb is the first one to respond because he knows his voice so well and he's been loved by it so well that he's the first of the sheep to respond. Is that you? Do you have a heart like that? A savior? When you hear his voice, you respond to it. That draw is longing, gives you a longing for home and a longing to connect with others who are on the same journey. Conversion is joining a caravan. Well, that's what he's done for us. So what we have to do now is we have to tease out what it means to live in this structure right here. And I was going to do it today, but I want to spend more time on it. So we'll get back to it. All right. Why don't you bow your heads? Father, we thank you that you're the shepherd that you are, that you have loved us even though we were unworthy. And spiritually speaking, no one would have us. You rescued us. You rescued us from seeking other means of salvation in people, in things. Father, help. I pray none of us, even now, if any of us are putting our hope and faith and, and desire to be saved by anything other than you, we realize It'll never work. So we surrender our lives to you today. If we don't know you, I pray, Lord, someone in this room will surrender to your leadership. Otherwise, for the rest of us who know that voice, help us to respond to it when we hear it. In Jesus' name.